Hello, this is Daniel, Beatrice's screen reader. The program you are about to hear was a patron-only episode recorded the 20th of July, when the United States had around 140,000 cover deaths. We are unlocking it today because of the tragicomic Trump interview in which he proved our point. I understand what you're saying, that people need to hear positive thinking, but, you know, for the past five months, it's been the virus is totally under control, and the cases have been going up and the deaths it have been going up. Look, look. But you've been saying it's Nobody under control. Nobody knew what this thing was all about. This has never happened before. I mean, these are people, many of them are older people, well, Mr. President. What's your of control? Yeah. Under the it's giving them a false sense right of security. Now, I think it's under control. I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying. That's true. And you ha it is what it is. If you enjoy this episode, please become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod for access to a second patron-only episode each week. You know, I mean, we, we basically decided that, like, anything that we could possibly say about Congress will be wrong within hours, right? right. Like, by the time that this episode is up, like, su yeah. circumstances will have changed. So we're, like, not going to address the Anything you can say with confidence looming. will be just, like, they're going to do something bad. It will right. be bad. Right. That's it. Yeah, exactly. But if I could just uh, rep myself for a little bit, <laughs> I guess. Oh, um, if if uh, listeners haven't heard, I started a newsletter called Health and Capital, um, which is a Substack, which... Uh, only has a couple posts so far, uh, but check it out if you if you uh, haven't or haven't heard of it. But I want to highlight one thing from the end of it, just like as one thing to talk about about the unemployment, which mm -hmm. is kind of like the central thing, really. That's that comes only at the end of my latest post, which is waiting for the dole, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> which doesn't really like I don't know is a pun that doesn't totally <laughs> work in, it, when you say it out loud. No, it sounds um, so much like you know. But it's like. I know that a lot of people, there has been some consternation about, you know, PPP loan money running out. But the fact that like uh, Golden, a Goldman Sachs report came out like a week ago saying that 84% of businesses expect that to have like completely exhausted their PPP loan funding uh, for payroll by yeah. the first week of August and a exactly the same figure, which is 16% say that they are not confident they can maintain their payroll uh, without further government yeah. assistance, which so if, you, if you take that, it's literally 84% also. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not even being, that's not even part of the package that's being debated right i i mean i think that it is it's hard to it's like hard to tell honestly Who, last who's I, to say but, at this yeah point. it's like yeah exactly it's, it's so all speculation until we've got a, anything to look at you mm -hmm. know but it's not even something that has been like explicitly the one thing i think we can say is like it's not even something that's been explicitly made, promised as a policy commitment nor have a lot of things you would think you know, perhaps uh, in an election year, there would be some like promises about the things that we at least the, the <laughs> world you want to see. Uh, and like the world you want to see is one in which like maybe you'll the small businesses on your street aren't uh, shuddering at once. Right. Uh, but but yeah, I think you make a really good point here, which is that everyone has been focused on unemployment. But the effect of not extending payments, these assistance payments will be so much more magnified if the PPP loans run dry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really, I feel like that, like all the measures that they took all together, again, doing the thing that we kind of talked about in the last episode of kicking the can down three months and saying like, well, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to, we're going to have it licked in three months, which I, as I guess we'll talk about <laughs> later in the episode is like uh -huh. absolutely absurd. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. I guess I, I sort of wish that we had, 
you know, we've had, we have all of these Congress watchers, you know, if you like read Twitter, there's like a whole like Twitter of like Congress watchers, just like there are Supreme Court watchers and, you know, (laughs) they all have their sort of idiosyncrasies and, and uh, annoyances uh, as, as like a community. The one thing we don't have is like, uh, that would seem a necessary compliment to all this is like civil unrest watchers. Like (laughs) as people are watching and waiting for Congress to do something, which will obviously be inadequate it might be worth having a beat of reporters. It's like, hey, when are people going to riot again? Uh, <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> it seems like a necessary sort of like uh, equilibrium there. Yeah. Or how or perhaps uh, how long are people going to continue to riot? Because they're, you know, in a way, it's like it hasn't stopped as I guess we'll talk about it in a second. But um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, almost more likely we'll. I think before we see the riot beat, we'll see like how hexed is the moon. Beat. Yeah, looking forward to the the new report coming out from the moon CBO. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like, Does the moon know that it's a planet now? We should probably tell it, right? Uh, yeah, that tweet was bad. Anyway. <laughs> Today, it is just me, Artie, and Phil. Vince is out. He left us something, didn't he? Oh, yeah. We have a little gift from him. Hello, I'm Vince Patty. I've (laughs) pre-written my takes for you to enjoy while I'm on vacation. (laughs) God. I still think we should make a Google Doc and make Vince submit takes that Daniel can periodically read. Just get some ice cold takes from two weeks ago. Or yeah, something. it doesn't Not even matter ago, if they're you know relevant I mean. to the conversation. We just use it like a soundboard. What just... is going to happen with unemployment right. insurance? <laughs> well, actually, yeah, exactly. Those clowns in Congress, right? Um, <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, yeah, but no, Vince is um, as we mentioned like a couple episodes ago. Vince had like driven to California to bring his friend somewhere uh, so they could remain housed basically um, and now Vince is like going to make a slower safer trip back uh, to New York route. yeah um, with more like Easy let's say too. contactless uh, camping I guess they're um, gonna go see Mount Rushmore I think oh lovely uh-huh. so, <laughs> great um, American road trip yeah That'll meanwhile be, the great meanwhile. American experiment yeah <laughs> does not stop Thank you for being a patron. We appreciate your support. Couldn't do it without you. For today's premium episode, I'm excited to have a very big conversation about COVID deaths, which I think is quite overdue. And before we get into that, let's let's go ahead and talk about the abductions happening in Portland over the weekend. It was, it was really striking to me in reading about this that uh, they had to quote a lawyer or law professor who they had to quote him saying the following arrests require probable cause that a federal <laughs> crime had been committed. That is specific information indicating that a person has committed a federal offense or a fair probability that the person has committed a fair. Why do we need to say this now? Right. This I mean, it was just like increasingly we're going to have to keep just like uh, the first amendment protects, right? <laughs> like it's right. Just, right. This is another one of those, like the dictionary definition of arrest is right. Um, Did you see the letter that OPB or Oregon public broadcasting sent to DHS, like asking very basic questions? questions too no no i didn't i guess this was like first reported by the uh like local pbs affiliate in in portland who sent 
like an extensive list of questions to DHS regarding um, the abductions going on. And I think it was like something like 16 questions, like things like uh, what's the legal justification for making arrests not on federal property? Why are federal officers using civilian vehicles and taking people away in them? And the only thing that DHS responded to was like, yes, the director Director Wolf is in Portland. We can't confirm. <laughs> God. And they didn't acknowledge yes. any of the other questions. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of those things where it's clearly a, uh, you know, pretty incipient, slippery slope right yeah. here, I guess, not only in terms of the, uh, you know, whatever, because I'm sure that it, it does seem that this has sparked some degree of like general outcry just because, you know, obviously the idea of unlabeled, uh, you know, like fed, like federal officers with no with basically like. But I mean, the accounts are pretty awful. It's, it's essentially like they're they're dressed like generic police or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like there's no. Yeah, their patches uh, just say police. Obscure yeah. patches. No names or like uh, identification of like who exactly they are, which matches some other stuff that we saw like earlier in uh, in D.C. at the sort yeah. of outsets of outset of the uprising. Um, but then like, you know, beyond that, even if, even if there is sort of a, a move to pull these things back, I mean, this, the account of one of the, one of the pro- protesters who got abducted, um, is, is pretty telling. Cause there's one who, there's one who spoke to the guardian and basically, you know, one of the things that he said was like, well, I didn't know if they were like, cause some, some like right wing wacko, yeah. like, uh, militia groups do like dress up in military fatigues like this playing cop or mm-hmm. whatever, um, with no markings in the same way. So it's like entirely right. possible that either some of these, uh, now, or then like later in the future that this will just like empower like right wing militia groups to oh, just God. do that under I didn't the cover even of being about that. like covered as though yeah. it's federal. Oh my God. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, Ugh. bad state of affairs, but an obvious result when you're going to have, uh, I mean, this is like Trump sticking to his promise, right? Like he's been mm-hmm. saying at rallies that he's going to go and like send in, uh, like federal police to crack down on protesters in cities. So, and, and I mean, it's like the, you know, there's, there's so much, I think criticism r- rightly, I, I, and I've been thinking about it for a long time of just like how little the federal government has done, how little it is expected to do in terms of. So, so many like addressing of human needs. The, right. the one place where it seems incredibly capable of acting quickly and delivering some kind of <laughs> swift policy outcome is in uh, repression. Right. And mm-hmm. that is, and I mean, look, if you don't live in the contiguous 48 or even, you know, Hawaii or Alaska, if you live in one of the United States territories, this will not at all be, uh, a, a mystery or unfamiliar to you. Exactly, and, yeah. you know, is reading this oral history with uh, Bill Barr in which he sort of proudly talks about how in 1989, after a hurricane, Hurricane Hugo in the Virgin Islands, oh, God. Uh, that he, I mean, and again, after a hurricane, which killed uh, several people, left uh, 3,500 people homeless. Uh, I think like 75% of people like lost their roofs. They, Instead of providing federal disaster aid, they sent in uh, federal troops under the pretext, very similar pretext uh, that that Barr talks about, uh, very, very similar to what we're seeing uh, now in Portland. He said that, that, you know, we just want to keep our federal buildings open. We want to keep our federal courts open. And his, his, his quote is, our object was to, quote, just get federal law enforcement down there and play it by ear. Right. God. So, yeah, I mean. 
And you had the, at the time the governor of the Virgin Islands saying, look, there's not lawlessness here. Um, there's not, you know, yeah, there there's been some looting, but in part business owners actually invited people to take stuff, uh, because the disaster had happened. They wanted to be able to claim insurance, um, and people were in need. Um, right. and so it was in one way, just a sort of like community protection strategy. And the, the solution was to go in and do this massive, uh, sort of repression and, you know, what starts in the colonial, protectorates moves inward towards the metropoles and now it's it's pretty clear that like they didn't put this federal presence in there to like tamp things down they put it in there to amp things up right oh, totally yeah. yeah i mean it's uh one lawyer described it as stop and frisk meets guantanamo bay which i think is a very <laughs> good um app description because like really the purpose of abducting people is to make people feel unsafe going to civil demonstrations i mean that's extremely accurate in general too considering right. that like one of the one of the things that has happened in american policing over the last like uh, basically, I mean, basically, since the the uh, start of the like wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. right, is that like a lot of people ended up like going and doing like tours of service in Iraq and Afghanistan, coming home, becoming cops, and mm-hmm. then some of those people, like um, you know, it's not federal police, but like Chicago police, yeah, uh, have been abducting uh, people and bringing them to what have been you know colorfully described as black sites to you know torture for information. But uh, there's a big set of reporting um since like 2015 mm-hmm. i think on that um maybe if you essentially like train p- train people first to like look at the like foreign outsider or whatever is this insurgent force that you have to like beat up and bully and fucking waterboard it's like mm-hmm. not a good idea to empower that same individual with like a badge Absolutely and a not. gun or any sort of power when they return right. you know what i mean i mean apparently i guess as recent as june the statistics show that 20 percent of police officers are military or ex-military Yikes. rather and that's fascinating if you think about how huge that is compared to the percentage of the actual total population, which I think is like yeah, somewhere exactly. around five or six percent of the population is ex-military um, based on like VA numbers. But 20 uh, percent, almost four times that in police departments. Yeah. Wow. The civil implications of the fact that many people are not being charged with anything. There's no record of them being abducted. I'm not even going to say arrested or detained and like dignify what they're doing with a description like that because they're just abductions, right? We need to be pretty, pretty plain about how we're talking about this. Um, And so what's to stop the officers then from just like dumping the person that they've assaulted nothing Nothing. right like there's no record of these people they're just being disappeared make a season of unsolved mysteries about that huh Mm -hmm. (laughs) right i mean and and the thing too is that like i think if you look at this in in comparative sort of like context that um the like the security regime in the united states is actually much more porous and and fragmented than we might think but one one thing one way you can think about this is like a cadre building exercise, <laughs> right? That you create a set of, of archetypes, uh, scenarios uh, that you can sort of galvanize a certain cluster of loyalists mm-hmm. around and then use that as a way of taking what is actually a fairly limited ability of 
the White House to control the entire security sector. And you gradually turn the security sector against uh, sort of against itself to project a particular uh, strategy. Uh, In in this case, the ability to like massively repress any kind of dissent. And it's like not surprising that right now what they're getting ready to do is replicate this in Milwaukee when the very limited DNC presence uh, is here uh, oh, yeah. in a couple of weeks. So I caught you know, that. And what, that's, e- what exactly did they say about that? Like they're just pl- they said they're just planning to deploy federal troops in the same manner or something. Or? Yeah, uh, <sighs> they basically said that um, uh, the White House chief of staff uh, said that the federal intervention is going to come to Milwaukee, but more or less compared uh, what's happening in Portland to what will happen uh, in Milwaukee. Oh so again, God. I think this is something that like. This is part of not only a, a way of like maybe making people who would go out to uh, demonstrations, you know, think twice, raise the specter of, of, of federal detention, but it's also a way of creating this security theater uh, right. around what's going on in major cities. And I don't know, talking to my parents who live in sort of an exurb of uh, a major city that's a very Trump voting like exurb. This is how people are increasingly start to talk about uh, starting to talk about what's going on um, in wow. the cities. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, I think just the fact that like these protests and, and actions have been going on for more than six weeks now in Portland, at least. It's interesting to watch sort of like the state try and pass off um, any responsibility in this situation too, because both the governor and the mayor have been saying, oh, you know, we like really um, we don't want them here. We don't need them. Like, please leave or stay inside your building to these like federal customs and border protection officers that I think are it's called Bortac, which is a kind of a cute name. Um, but like it, it, it's funny because in a way it's like this has created like a whole other discourse that drowns out and changes the pressure that was on the mayor and governor to like deal with some of the demands of the protesters. Right. Which is now well, and if the governor wanted to, she could deploy the National Guard to protect the demonstrators right. and defend off. Uh, right. These people. I mean, that that's sort of like the the LARPing scenario that people projected like, oh, is it going to be, <laughs> you know, the National Guard meets the CBP at the state line sort of thing. Yeah. But I mean, in point of fact, if she really wanted CBP to be gone, that would have to be there as a threat that is at least on the table. But it's not. I mean, if you want to have federalism, have real federalism. Right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it just makes me think of. There are some, for instance, like defenders of capitalism who will (laughs) like take offense at the idea that uh, like capitalism is a natural extension from like feudalism and the feudal order. But like, honestly, this sounds extremely like the scenario that you guys are 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 teasing out sounds to me extremely like a fucking like feudal. Maybe I'm just thinking about this because like Ghost of Tsushima came out just recently, (laughs) but like sounds like a feudal fucking like warring states period or something like that, where it's just, you know, different uh, like because what like what 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 was like the entire feudal order except for basically having like a group who were separate from the regular populace, right? Mm-hmm. Just as right. in the same way that uh, B is talking about like cops in the military are by being already like a group of uh, people who like self-select into like these the brutality type, industry. Uh, right. But also who often, you know, it's like it becomes like a family affair, like, you know, is like looked at and there, you know, we, we've talked about plenty yeah, here, not for a while, but 
which was very on display in like the 2016 DNC of all places of oh. like mil- military officers and like police officers looking at, at themselves as like actually deserving of citizenship or something because they served as opposed as opposed to like this other class of citizenry um so like what is that if not a fucking feudal order you know like bearing down on people to protect private property i mean come on and i mean if you if you ever lived in a place where there was a primarily extractive economy for example hawaii uh with sugar plantations or i don't know kentucky or anywhere in appalachia really uh where there were company towns of any kind, yeah, the the allusion to feudalism will not at all be like surprising. It is oh, for most, yeah. you know, like middle class people who like live in the city and and don't necessarily like have to see the like rough edges of these things. Uh, but now they do. Why? Because the system is uh, being challenged. Is it in yeah. a way that differs from the past? Yeah. No. Exactly. And let's go ahead and and uh, shift the conversation to something like much more upbeat. Can I I, I transition? Can I transition? Like, uh, you want to carry this transition? I was just trying to make you guys laugh. No, 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 it's good. (laughs) No, I mean, it is sort of interesting because the, there's always sort of a question that comes up, which is what allows governments to, to do massive like repression of their people. (laughs) Um, there's a parallel in the, how do, uh, quote unquote, like modern, uh, societies or states allow uh, <laughs> hundreds of thousands, if not millions of their people to perish by their own uh, omission or own action. And the answer is like, no, it's entirely plausible. It happens all the time, but we don't understand uh, much about it, uh, but it does happen. Uh, and so we shouldn't be surprised that like we're not doing that much to actually forestall uh, many, many more deaths. So like there's, an evolving pretty constant line that we've been discussing since the beginning of sort of people with pre-existing conditions who maybe would have died anyways, who are just dying sooner, people who are older. <laughs> but I think the framing of it as um, as deaths that were already banked somehow. Oh, that's like <laughs> one of the most um, disturbing things that I have seen, which is you know, the, I think it was in the journal, Milwaukee journal Sentinel, that there was a something from the medical examiner, uh, that they were doing a study to looking at, uh, whether or not the pandemic is just pulling deaths from the future that like, whether or not the people who are dying, just, they would have died in a couple months anyway. Um, they were nearing death anyway. And, uh, and so the, the COVID yeah. COVID just acted like a little, like, uh, little energizer bunny just speeding, speeding that yeah. up yeah so basically i think yeah to i mean to maybe elaborate a bit further to what we want to talk about essentially is what is wrong is like what what is happening essentially in front of our eyes in terms of how we are having like a like but i guess national but also kind of broadly like global public conversation about mm-hmm. coronavirus deaths mm-hmm. um and how I don't know actually how kind of troublesome a lot of the indicators that we see from that are because there are a lot of comparisons, for example, that have happened uh, to like the 1918 influenza pandemic, like obviously. And one of the reasons is that the one of the reasons that that gets like pulled out so often is really just, I think, because like it's one of the only it's one of the big global ones that a lot of people seem to remember uh, or, so, or something, um, even though there, you know, there have been others and because of the the staggering like death toll there. But one of the things uh, culturally, as far as I understand it from like reading some of the histories of, of it is that like essentially once it was resolved, 
things sort of moved on. Yeah. Um, people like forgot people, about it. Or, uh, and whether they forgot about it or not, they like, yeah, they, they like, you know, push it out of mind basically. It and was I feel forgotten like, for them wholesale. Right. And yeah. I, I like, I always thought that was strange. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, that it didn't precipitate like massive, uh, like social changes or that it did, it didn't seem to like, it, it didn't seem to like hold in the cultural memory as, as strongly as one would perhaps like assume that it should. But now living through this pandemic, I feel like, and watching some of this stuff in fact specifically that we're going to look at today i kind of like wonder or not wonder i kind of understand a bit more almost and it makes me a bit it makes me concerned personally yeah i agree because it's funny there is a a striking similarity to the political response and unfortunately i think like the 1918 flu we are only like getting started this was our first round with it we can expect i think a durational experience with this novel coronavirus to say the least we're just we're just ramping up we've already seen i think over 140,000 deaths in the u.s the u.s accounts for one in four global covid deaths which is pretty impressive go us but the thing about the spanish the, the 1918 flu that i think as a as a comparison point makes it puzzling for me is I mean, my understanding of the politics of forgetting then was sort of that, you know, in part, there was a deliberate attempt to to misremember. But it was also, if you think about what the institutional landscape looked like, both in the U.S. and around the world, there was there was no WHO. um, There was no CDC and systems of, of vital statistics and civil registration, which would have recorded and formally like encoded these deaths as a political problem, didn't really were pretty rudimentary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that's striking is, okay, we now have this so-called sophisticated system for tracking these things. You can't open up any newspaper in any city without having one article possibly on the front page on any given day that tells you where you are in terms of deaths, cases, right. any kind yeah. of indicator that your little data heart bursting with energy and, and attention uh, could hope to could hope to like be attracted to. Um, but that doesn't seem to forestall the possibility that we might find other ways of forgetting. And, mm-hmm. the, and, the, and the question that I've been asking since the beginning is like, how are we going to avoid dealing with this now? And at first I thought, well, maybe it'll be this thing kept being rehearsed was that, oh, well, more people die of the flu every year. And then you know, quickly, I'm, I'm sure that some people still say that, you know, I'm sure that their yeah. email, like forwarded yep. email chain still going around <laughs> about that. But, but yeah. at the very least, like elite media stopped rehearsing that quite as much because the patently ridiculousness of that, uh, came to be clear that like we measure flu deaths in a completely different way. And so you can't compare these two things. Um, but the, and then if you actually did compare them in the same way, you would see that COVID-19 deaths are in fact much higher. Um, but, uh, you know, then I thought, well, maybe it'll just be that, uh, that, uh, we stop, we start like downplaying the numbers in some way or like start like reporting them less, or we just like gradually the economic necessity of reopening just forces this to like purge this thing from our memory but you know you can't get rid of the obit section in a newspaper which now in the milwaukee (laughs) journal sentinel is very long right and there is a obvious reason why it's very long i mean some newspapers have full sections of obits 
uh, now. I mean, um, I mean, I think this is the this is like the thing because it. Be, I think it does become the question of like COVID deaths, for example, which you know, one, I think one reason too, just to put a pin in this, that we're we're talking about this is because there has been the. There has been the narrative for weeks of like, oh, well, you know, people are so worried about COVID deaths, but like the amount of new reported cases is, is going up and and we don't see the amount of deaths uh, like going up <laughs> corresponding to it at the same time. Gee, so I like there must be a different. Yeah, but because like, it takes time to die. Surprise. Right, exactly. We can talk about in a bit. But like um, I do think then that gets naturalized as just like a big number it right. gets, and it gets and that big number gets naturalized in part, I think, through language like like we sort of talked about, which is oh, through sure. uh, that study saying to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, like, uh, we're going to we're going to determine whether deaths whether these deaths are in fact simply pulled from the future or uh, public officials saying like oh COVID uh, the, like many of these people in these nursing homes uh, you know just simply died sooner or uh, Bill O'Reilly in April saying many of the people die, who died uh, quote they were on their last legs anyway um, also in the UK Dominic Cummings quote herd, immer- herd immunity protect the economy and if that means some pensioners die too bad um as though you know pensioners old people are like the only people who uh are susceptible to or or uh, die from it and the uk also like neil ferguson basically saying like two-thirds of coronavirus victims uh would have just died anyway uh-huh. um, it's so. like it's like saying uh pantaleo pulled eric gardner's death from the future right well and it's like saying the and it's like the fucking thing that happened with george floyd that was like oh well he had these underlying conditions right yeah not just the fact that you're kneeling on a human being's neck not the fact that he was fucking murdered yeah right and, and i think it's also i mean there's a constitutive part of this which is that i think contributes to the confusion and and kind of powerlessness that people feel which is that how do you actually determine a death from right. that? It, you know, how do you determine that it comes from uh, COVID-19? And, you know, we have this system for classifying uh, disease and death, the ICD, uh, International Classifications of Diseases, um, that comes from the WHO. And in that system, uh, we have uh, a, a classification for, for COVID-19 uh, deaths. But of course, that depends on some kind of test associated uh, with the death. And obviously we are not doing the kind of testing uh, that is, that would be required uh, to actually make those kinds of determinations in large scale. Um, and the, the, the classification of these uh, deaths uh, varies tremendously uh, across place. So we've sort of baked that uncertainty in um, from the beginning. Right. And it, it I think there's no uh, denying that it exists, that many people might experience the death of a loved one and not know whether right, it has yeah. from COVID. And so the question is right. like, well, how do we publicly as a society, like treat those deaths? Right. Cause also I want to, I do want to point out one thing too, which is that, uh, we've cases were underreported, for example, at the beginning of the pandemic specifically, because, um, at the very outset in order to get a test, you essentially basically had to have direct, like you had to have traveled from Wuhan or and something. And you also had to have like, a fever. And, yeah. yeah. And, and test negative so for a bunch ridiculous. of other things. So they yeah. set, they set the bar so high, um, for being able to receive a test in the first place. And now we're seeing a kind of like paradoxical, uh, other flip side to that, which is that apparently um there's 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 some i guess uh preponderance uh you know this this is like anecdotal but there's some preponderance among um 
so, like not obviously not all, but some doctors who kind of assume like who literally will not do a COVID test if someone's coming in with COVID symptoms, but they say that they've already had it before and gotten better, even though we know that people like that are potentially being is happening. reinfected. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't, I or or yeah. either whether it's reinfection or like the disease was res- like resurging and not being totally wiped out or something, you know? But yeah, no, I, I, I mean, it's, we've got uh, technically, I guess they're correct. Any death is pulling a death from the future potentially, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, uh, even if I, I don't know, yeah, that depends on how many stages of depends on how you like view probability, uh, theory or whatever, like branching timelines or something <laughs> yeah. like right. that. You know what or, I mean? Or like, yeah, I think that also requires like a belief in an omnipotent, uh, death calendar of some kind right. as well. Yeah. But, but um, I mean, but I mean, ask any family member of somebody who has died, uh, fr- from COVID if they feel like their loved one, th- their death was just, you know, pulled from the future. Right. It's exactly. not going to, it obviously doesn't feel like that. Well, and I think, uh, to, to that point, maybe now's a good time to get into that study. Uh, yeah, the- actually, um, that, that is a good point. We are going to talk about a study today that is, um, kind of a, a, a little piece of history folks. Um, it's the largest data set ever used in a medical study to date. Huh? No, it that doesn't have 17 million people in this study well, and, or something like that. And, uh, yeah. what, what lovely, uh, <laughs> what lovely product it produced. Yeah. Um, so, um, this is a, uh, this is a study that came out in nature, um, called open safely factors associated with COVID-19 death in 17 million patients. Yeah. And this is something that like, so you know, it came out like last month, um, but we haven't had a chance to talk about it, but actually it's kind of perfect because in a way when, when thrown against that, uh, public narrative that we're talking about, I'd say like, although the, the study itself, like, as we'll talk about kind of comes apart at the seams, it makes it clear that that's like not what's happening. Right. Exactly. So this study basically just confirms what a lot of other smaller studies have indicated, which is that, um, there is a significant racial disparity in the death statistics of COVID-19. Um, and that there are a significant amount of people who have died, who have had comorbid conditions. Um, so this is like something that's been a, um, a constant refrain, um, we've talked about a couple little studies that have been done here or there, but this one is sort of the largest. And they took uh, primary care charts from the electronic medical records of like 17 million UK residents. So what they do say in the study is that people from black or minority ethnic groups, they call it BME is their acronym, um, do have an increased likelihood of bad outcomes when getting COVID-19. Um, and they talk about stuff like people who are smokers, people with untreated diabetes seems to be a huge determining factor, which makes sense. You have a massive untreated systemic condition. Um, and so they sort of identify all these things like heart disease, et, et cetera. Um, and they say, you know, oh, yes. And, and part of this could be a result of social factors or income distribution. But uh, you could use this to just imply and sort of blame people for their own deaths by simply determining that they were unhealthy or they went untreated or they did not um, access care. Right. And, and the research isn't the data itself is not going to tell you how to uh, interpret it. Right. Once data crosses the transom into the social and political world <laughs> like it, it doesn't speak in that way. I mean, I think what they pretty persuasively show is that you can't 
One thing that you can't do is attribute all of the variation across ethnic groups, for example, to comorbidities. Right. right. So like one one conventional racist American explanation for, I don't know, <laughs> so much is that that um, that people of color are just like, oh, they, they don't live as healthy lives or that, you know, just like the, the classic narrative since the 1960s of just illegitimacy. Uh, for being in the criminalization and and stigmatization of just not being a white member of the <laughs> shining white republic. But in, yeah. what they show here is that, first of all, l- let's be honest about the origins of, of chronic conditions among uh, uh, minorities in the United States, which are already the result of social and economic deprivation. But what mm-hmm. they show is that even like cast that the whole history of chronic disease and it's under treatment, under diagnosis, um, and and the, the sort of metastasized effects of, of disparity. Cast all of that aside. Even chronic disease doesn't explain all the variation, and Mm-mm. you have to look at right. directly a relationship between deprivation and uh, and and the outcomes. And what they show is that people who are the most deprived are significantly more likely than the least deprived to. Um, to experience a, a premature death from COVID. Why? Gee, right. I don't know. Could it be that people are more likely to use public transportation? Uh, people are less likely to have a car. People are more likely to uh, have to work in a quote unquote essential uh, business that, uh, pff, you know, I'm sure really follows uh, national standards and guidelines for, for safe uh, workplace. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think while this study could easily be used to quite negative ends, it does sort of at least provide a, a wedge to, uh, you know, counteract that. But I guess the thing that I feel from this is like data, data is not going to solve sort of all of our, our, our problems. Right. 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 Well, I mean, especially when, as you, as you mentioned, when within the study, for example, when the data uh, I think, as you said, crosses the transom of the social. Um, it manifests in, um, like, for for example, this lovely takeaway from the authors, quote, people from black and minority ethnic groups are at increased risk of bad outcomes for, from COVID-19 for reasons that are unclear. Um, right. It's a for, like, if like, you if you even just look at bare what they're saying when they break down their analysis, it becomes clear that, like, the single constant actually is economic deprivation, yeah. more than anything else, right? And any critique that you have of like a chronic illness leading to someone's death is also a critique of their economic deprivation by default. Right, because anyone who studies, who seriously studies the like actual meaning of like social determinants of health and not the way that social determinants of health are utilized by something like the healthcare industries, right. for example, like the social determinants of, of health, all of these things, like almost everything on this list uh, like the, all these other uh, conditions that it lists as, or sorry as like underlying uh, conditions that these individual covid patients have are themselves cor- like comorbidities of living in a capitalist system and being deprived exactly like, I, I, I mean it's like it's absolutely wild because they this what the study basically shows but they refuse to say is that economic deprivation which is the probably single easiest thing for us to fix Right. From a policy perspective um, that economic deprivation in and of of itself sort of just exists 
in its own vacuum separate from this study. Right, yeah. Despite the fact that what the study actually proves is that if we did something very quickly to seriously address economic deprivation, less people would die of COVID. Well, or at the very least, that predominantly the people being put in the har- right. in harm's way of the pandemic are the uh, like are the poorest and most vulnerable among us. Right. right. You know, right. one of the things that I think is like very dangerous is that essentially also this is a sales pitch for an electronic medical records product. Right. Yeah. I mean, though, that's yes. yeah. Yeah. I mean, well. I guess they'll lose no opportunity to sell a product. Uh, right. very American entrepreneurialism um, or British entrepreneurialism in this case. But, but I think the other thing is like, okay, we have a study here that should allow us to, I have no problem with actually trying to pinpoint what the demographic, you know, descriptive statistics of, of COVID-19 deaths are. I think that's important, right? I don't think anybody would deny that it's important. The thing we're trying to deal with is how it's going to be misused and appropriated as a way of deferring responsibility uh, for these uh, for these issues. And I think it actually gets to a larger issue, which is when a crisis like like COVID is so large, the narrative about exactly what are we trying to what is the goal of pandemic management? Right. Or what is the goal of like pandemic response? That term is just left as an empty signifier. And and like any number of things can come into substitute. So like one thing that you that like the conversation has now moved to and it appears to be, you know, quote unquote, depolarizing on thanks to the, the good people at Goldman Sachs is that like, <laughs> oh, you know what we did? If we just all wore masks, if we just all wore masks, you know, everything would be better. Obviously, everybody should wear masks. Uh, n- no doubt. Um, and then it's like, well, if we just did this much testing, then we could do X. Great. We should be doing testing. People should be able to be tested daily. Right. But the what you miss when you misread this data or when you don't look at it at all is that what the the pandemic is doing is illustrating why a response to the pandemic alone will be inadequate if you wish to prevent its deaths. Exactly. Right. So it's sort of like the, the pandemic is doing a little magic trick. It's making you think that all of the action that you need to focus on is with the mitigation of of the virus itself. Yeah, exactly. When in fact, there's this other thing behind the curtain, which is doing a lot of the work, which is racism, capitalism, and their, their, uh, you know, toxic intermixture. Well, and that's, that's what I wanted to circle back to really, which is that, so, you know, we do, we, we have this study and kind of like, uh, we've been talking about in terms of like how it can be wielded, wielded, like interpreted or willfully or or unwillfully um, interpreted towards the wrong fundamental point is like basically you know again sort of as i said like this this is basically a study that shows okay well the social determinants of health are real um right yeah um and and like basically looks at a cross-section of all these these uh different factors that impact again whether you're more likely to to die from COVID 19 but the the fundamental takeaway cannot be like, oh, like as, as it even says in the body of the text, like, oh, well, the reason is unclear. Like the fundamental takeaway has to be the pandemic highlights the contradictions of capitalism. So you see that the most vulnerable people are in the pathway of this virus or falling victim to it and dying from it. Um, but that also, unfortunately, it makes it much easier in mm-hmm. a way to uh to reinforce that sentiment like oh look at the look at how this virus is killing vulnerable people right right? like 
doesn't that just say, oh, these people are, you know, th- like the, these people had underlying health conditions, et cetera. Like they're, they're people who are, because we don't, um, we don't think about, uh, like health in the United States or in any capitalist country, cause this is UK data, but like, we don't think of health under capitalism as we think of it all as the, as like the, the prerogative and the like moral failing or moral, uh, you know, victory of like the individual mm-hmm. often, as opposed to what it really realistically is, which is like all of the factors that, like accumulate around you in life that are most of which you have nothing to do with. Right. Right. Um, Frankly, unfortunately this study and like many other studies like this um, are being used as sort of a divining rod, right. To sort of like uh, justify the idea that these people were always going to die. But when you're working on a study like this, you're going into a data set looking for patterns, right? Like what we have here in this study is exactly what they set out to find. Right. Which is um, a these studies in a lot of ways are being done as a means to be able to have some comprehensive literature to turn to in the event of needing to ration care down the line. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a very major reason why this stuff is being done. And especially in the UK for the NHS, because one of the things that we've already seen is that a lot of people have been sort of independently on a one-off basis been triaged in a way that like reinforces old ideas about who has a right to survive, right? Um, and in a lot of ways, like I think that these studies and this type of um, framing is so dangerous because one, it like gives people cover to not act on addressing the social determinants of health, right? But two, it's literature that supports the reinforcement of that, right, in in clinical decisions down the line. Yeah. And that's a really good point, B. That's an incredibly good point. And it's like it's if we had a better public understanding of uh, of these sorts of things, it, it would be easier to like begin poking and prodding when people say, oh, you know, what we really are interested in here is just like a public health strategy to you know, whatever, uh, flatten the curve or, you know, like bring down deaths. And if we had a clearer grasp on what's going on, it's like, yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. How are we going to manage the deaths that do happen? Are are you just going to use this to ration care or are we actually going to like change our society in some way? Uh, you know, forcing people to, to, to get beneath the platitudes that expertise allows, um, it seems really, really important. You know what I wish they published with studies sometimes is like the proposal that they wrote first, <laughs> because it it really this this study seems to me, um, frankly, in explicit anticipation of further austerity down the line. Like we know that everyone is talking about budget cuts right now. This is the kind of study that is done in anticipation of having to make some very tough decisions about where we put our resources. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, there's there's a whole bunch of things that it is going to be very hard for people to admit that they're, you know, that the government to which they swear allegiance or not uh, will allow. And right. one of them is mass death and mass death at like the hands of austerity. And so it's just very, very comfortable for people to just go on believing that oh, we, we would never allow that to happen. We right. absolutely would. And if we don't report on the way that knowledge is being used in this particular way with, with some level of scrutiny or skepticism, um, then we are going to 
just allow that to right i think to happen yeah and i want i wanted to make sure that we got to this because the um i mean the, there was something that when we were when we were talking about um you know the idea about trying to you know have a have a conversation uh on the podcast about like not only why the conversation around like covid deaths is so f- like fucking wrong and seems so it seems so like incongruous and and just uh, i don't know like hyper normalized or something in the united states uh particularly in the united states um like one of the things that we were talking about uh was that like 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 for what's the goal of us talking about this right i mean the goal of us talking about this is that like the at some level the understanding can like change um and that we can actually draw meaningful conclusions from what is happening within the pandemic right and Mm -hmm. and actually like really internalize what this fucking what mass death fucking means um and phil you, you brought up something that was like that like essentially like social change like real substantial social and political change only tends to happen after mass death or can happen after mass death but like depends uh, quite frankly, on our ability to internalize that mass death as meaningful in some way. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole literature out there on on you know mass death events or like major catastrophes or calamities and, and social change. And like, you know, one level you can read all kinds of studies about how like the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, you know, had electoral effects and like incumbents lost and everything like that. And, you know, okay, we got some new policies from the arm, the good people of the Army Corps of Engineers. (laughs) Um, But the I think the bigger um, sort of finding in this in this broader literature is that we have all kinds of disasters, but they often and you would expect that, like, especially when very, very large numbers of people die, that you will get some sort of enduring um, changed maybe, especially if there's something government could have done right, to prevent yeah. it. Right. Uh, because as long as the deaths are seen as something random or they're not even collected in some way, governments get off scot-free, right. If it doesn't seem like there's anything they could have done. Um, but even when they, when there is, um, what can result if there isn't major social and political mobilization, uh, that the, the, the crisis just results in an intensification of the status quo and repression. Right. So the example I was thinking of was this 1999 earthquake in Turkey uh, called the Marmara earthquake. And it, um, it killed, I think 20,000 people. Um, I think about double that number were injured. Tons of buildings were, were damaged and destroyed. And it was like really obvious that the state was responsible for a lot of this, there were no good building codes. Buildings were built in very uh, bad ways. Um, mm-hmm. The state's response to the the disaster itself, the emergency response was, was very limited and bad. And there was um, some erosion in the trust uh, in the state and like social mobilization uh, thereafter. So I think a lot of people expected at the time that there would be, you know, this, major change in the government's approach to managing natural disasters. Um, But what resulted was instead the state cracked down on the bank accounts, actually like froze bank accounts of um, civil society organizations that were trying (laughs) to do a response to the earthquake in place of the state. Um, It's central. It, if anything, just helped to centralize power uh, for a time. Um, and you know, in the end, yeah, there were some technical changes in the way that Turkey, you know, planned for earthquake type emergencies, but, um, 
and if, if anything, it was the fact that there was some challenge to the ruling parties by an Islamic party uh, that that provoked that, if anything. But it wasn't a moment where the the like the legitimacy say of the Turkish regime collapsed, right? Right. Um, and so I think it's just important to be to be real. I think there's a lot of expectation of positive social change re- resulting from this. What seems to a lot of people a very clear depiction of capitalism's failures, but it, it's not going to do, it's not going to work on its own. Right. right. And it, the, the creation of the NHS is sort of another counter example, which is that was it the second world war that prompted the creation of the NHS? Well, in part, uh, the incapacitation of the pre-existing sort of British system of, of healthcare, but it was really the fact that you had a labor party that was committed as like one of its first principles to create yeah. a national health service. Right. So this is, you don't get there without sustained political mobilization. Disasters don't create their own responses. Totally. Yeah. No. Yeah, exactly. And and I think, you know, especially when we're looking at sort of this, um, looming resurgence of the virus in the United States and possibly elsewhere or continued surgeons, consurgence of the virus. (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, it's a, it's especially important to remember, you know, that, that this argument and this type of analysis and the way that that's included in the way we speak about it and talk about it and worry about it, you know, is actively undermining attempts to fix these problems or our power to fix these problems at the end of the day. Like the, the, the problem with studies like this, for example, are that they're actually making analyses in this study that their data does not qualify them to make, right? They're sort of jumping to the conclusions and, if we want to go with that, that's fine. But like the problem is, is that this is not going to be like a another three weeks, three months. This is probably like a, another year, at least with some possible future annual recurrence. That's kind of how these viruses tend to work. Right. We should be thinking of this, like you were saying, as an opportunity to implement plans and be more prepared for next time. However, analysis like this, which they frankly don't have the real receipts to make lay the groundwork for going in with terrible austerity from day one. I mean, no, I to think the next pandemic here, here is one way of thinking about the cognitive problem here, which is that I think as sort of the political field has professionalized, there's been this thing that has occurred, which is uh, rather than having like, say political vision, or, or, or like developing a, a manifesto for social change, there's been an increasing dependence on sort of looking at the data as not only social indicators that one might inform the way one phrases an argument, the way one writes a, a policy proposal, the way one writes like a preamble to something, but instead to look for the data for the answers or the vision, right. which is, it always recurs to me when I listen to virologists uh, who I, I, whose expertise just baffles and awes and amazes me on a, on a daily basis. Um, but when they're given to, you know, provide some explanation for what's going on right now, or they're very frustrated um, with the, the politicization, as they say, of, of the, the data and the the, the crisis. And, it, you know, if only we could somehow like get politics out of it, um, <laughs> every, everything would be, would be better. Right. And the Cuomo the, thing, there are no politics in a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we, we've like been on about this a lot, but I, I think 
the problem cuts very deep, which is that the data will not tell you. It will simply not tell you what the appropriate thing to do is in the response to this. Again, as B said earlier, you could use this data to ration care. You could use this data to triage people and and find ways of uh, uh, hiding the value of their lives or devaluing right. their yeah. lives. This you data will this be data used to, for something. Right. Yeah, particularly, you can use the data used. to pass the buck. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you think also just in particular, like how in a lot of ways, like ableism is a core principle of the Trump administration's policies in general. Right. The, how this UK study could be used in the United States uh, to deal with like budget shortfalls with the VA, budget shortfalls with Medicaid. It starts to get pretty gross. Right. But I mean, the you know, I mean, and I do think I mean, this is why I think like, for example, uh, you know, among other things, we get really pissed off when we hear people venerating like Anthony Fauci just because like he is a scientist or something like, you know what I mean? Like as if the, there's no the bias simple, there. Well, not only is there, there's no bias, but like for the simple fact of, of, you know, sort of being a public health official in an otherwise chaotic from from a like uh you know general public vantage point like chaotic administration right like the idea um you know that phil was bringing up that like that uh, virologists promote that a lot of scientists and doctors promote that like oh we that it's a terrible thing that the the uh the pandemic is getting politicized like for like first of all how could this possibly exist outside of the realm of politics Right, right, exactly. I mean, what in in what moment in history has like a fucking mass death scenario or a massive viral outbreak not been politicized in some way? Like, are you fucking kidding? Like, do you, but well, I, also, I think there's a real confusion about what that right, term exactly. means. I think what they mean is what they mean is the the not doing what I think is right. Uh, right. and, and like, and not listening to, uh, the experts that you have in place. And I, I guess if, if, if that's all you mean, yes, perhaps it's unfortunate that it has been uh, politicized in that way, but, but that's a really, I think very mislead it mis it leads people down this garden path of accepting whatever the status quo is, because if you don't politicize it, that's what's going to happen. Exactly. Well, right, and also you- because these are by nature political events, like these have to like, this necessitates like a real as you were bringing up with the NHS, Phil, like a real political vision to come in and respond to, because otherwise we're going to otherwise like a fictitious depoliticized version of a virus response uh, like this would be yes, to basically look at like, okay, well, what resources do we already have? Cause we're not going to create any resources because that would be a political act. Okay, great. So now we're going to have to ration them because we don't have enough resources and we, you know, we can't possibly commit to, uh, you know, finding or making more or reorganizing society in any way. Okay. So who's it already killing? Who's most likely to just die anyway, no matter what we do. Okay. Then, well, we got to ration it. We so borrowed that's your those fucking, from the future. It's like drawing cor- down your 401k, right? You're take like, the yes. tax penalty, <laughs> borrow those deaths. We'll take the PR penalty. Yeah. You know, it's no, but, exactly how they're thinking about and you're it. fucking so your fucking depoliticized response is only going to be austerity is only going to be like further unnecessary right. mass death and also like frankly blaming politiz like politicization or just polarization or whatever as the sole reason why these recommendations are not being followed also alleviates responsibility to like actually either act to address or abolish the structural um things that support and reinforce the reasons why people are dying in disproportionate like demographics you know it's it serves as a liability cover also 
You know what I mean? And it, it serves to defer responsibility and accountability, yeah. frankly. Yeah. And it's, and the thing is, I think the, I can under, I well understand the frustration with politicization and the reliance on, or the, the, uh, attempt to defer all, authority and responsibility to some neutral set of principles because at a time when you know trust in institutions is like at an all-time low why wouldn't people search uh for that why wouldn't people search for some sort of alternative set of principles but the acting as if your thumb is not somehow on the scale when you make decisions is is childlike frankly and i think it also it it really does it allows you to avoid responsibility for saying this is the kind of society we want to have. And if, and if you're avoiding a responsibility for saying that, which is fundamentally, that's what happens in the political realm, right? Like if you don't like it, just get off earth basically. <laughs> um, you know, but go to if, that if, new if, planet, the moon, right? I mean, if, if it's, if, if you don't want to, to somehow be involved in that, uh, you are by necessity accepting whatever the minimum level of response uh, would be or or locking in or freezing into place whatever the system is already capable of which let's be honest we can see what that is (laughs) massive death massive level of disease unemployment right you take politics out of it you got nothing yeah i mean if it if it's politics then it couldn't possibly be that just like as a society we don't value people that we deem to be quote unquote unhealthy in any sort of context or capacity, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think every single death and the way we talk about every single death right now just feeds into this like greater problem we have socially of like not being very capable or willing to talk about these things. So again, it's like every obituary, every news report, every, you know, ad that's like protect the vulnerable or stay six feet from the elderly or, you know, wear a mask. Like it creates these like violent reactions because it's like entrenched in this like deep social tradition of like fearing death, otherizing it and then attempting to prevent it through like exclusion, you know? Well, and, and on the other side of that, I think there are a lot of researchers out there who are very worried about one of two things. One, their research becoming politicized once it crosses the transom or, them losing their credibility somehow because they are perceived as having values of some kind. And <laughs> I, I think rather than rather than try to deal with like ought that that whole stupid epistemological question of like, oh, oh, do I really have values when I go in and test a hypothesis? Like that's the stupidest question in the world. Yeah. The, the, the better question is why is it falling to researchers to like come up with political vision? Why is it falling to Anthony Fauci uh, to come up with a like political program for like what ails the United States? He's he's simply not trained to do that. That's not what he wants to do. And that's not like what his comparative advantages are. That's certainly not what I trust him to do. Well, right. And that and the thing is that falls to the political branches of government, to the political arena, which has indulged in the richest, most decadent fantasy that it is somehow not responsible for the only fucking thing that it is responsible for, which is <laughs> guiding society in some particular fucking way. Right. And right. like the idea that like people are running for office on like, ah, science is real. You're convincing 
precisely no one of anything yeah. and you should have a different job maybe consider working for an insurance company um, but, but, but the yeah. idea that you can somehow duck this responsibility that, that your goal is to like tweak the instruments rather than to write a manifesto you you misunderstand you've been taught wrong everyone in your life has failed you and you have failed congratulations <laughs> hell yeah i mean that i feel like it's the totally appropriate attitude for the situation especially considering like the agreement of most experts right now is pointing to like we can expect a thousand to fifteen hundred deaths a day in the united states easily for the next couple of weeks yeah as we uh barrel towards fall and Congress fails to act and pushes people back to work. Um, I mean, that would make sense based on case, the case amounts too. considering that, like, you know, as we, I mean, I, I alluded to it earlier, but to put a fine point on it, like, you know, it takes time to die. It's also not certain that you will die. Like the, I think the, there was a study that was like the average, um, from, from onset of like noticeable symptoms to death is like 17.8 days. Right. It's either an average or a median. I'm not sure, uh, which, which one exactly, but you know, so that's, right, that's quite the, a long time scale. The uh, figures range no, from between like 13 to 18, right. but and it's still a long time. It's, yeah. a, it's a long time. And it's also, and that's a long time on top of the fact that, that from, whatever in like initial exposure or something to showing the symptoms is itself can be a long time scale sometimes. Right. Right. So that's that, like, like a considerable amount of time. So I would, yeah, I would assume I, I'm, you know, that the, the figure that basically what I'm saying is the figure that you're saying I, does not surprise me at all. But I think that the may, maybe as, maybe as like a sort of counter, I guess, to this study that we looked at mm-hmm. um, just, just for a moment, I want to, I want to pause on one thing, which hasn't been looked at. Unfortunately, I think as much as, like I, th- I think this is actually something that should be maybe uh, analyzed a bit deeper with some more like peer-reviewed studies because I don't actually know if there there's I think one that's peer-reviewed and the others are like kind of like pre-printed and have not been taken up, which means like you know they're, they're basically not like useful science. Uh, mm-hmm. But like the they're not useful. They're basically like not useful information. But the uh, there there have been a couple of attempts, um, including one that uh, I will look to by like by Harvard that is um, and one by a group of Italian researchers that looked at a figure called uh, like years of potential life lost, Mm, um, mm -hmm. which is essentially looking at, okay, so, you know, you break it down by, it also looks actually at um, different demographic groups, much like the other study that we were looking at. Um, But it also breaks it down by like age category and essentially compares those, those deaths um, and the, like the, the age of death to, you know, life expectancy essentially, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe. Um, these two different studies, they, they show like slightly different things, but for instance, like the Italian study, it's essentially like for both men and women, it's like just slightly over a decade on average of of life lost, meaning that, you know, people essentially, even if they're, even if they're old, even if they're disabled, like the, the, these took deaths from the future thing is meaningless because on average they're, it's, you know, it, We'll it's still taking it from the cut like a decade yeah. off of someone's potential life expectancy right um the harvard data um was like very similar but the that if when you when you look at that that's where those uh, social determinants of health and the the sort of like you know the the like racist elements of capitalism mm-hmm. uh show really hard because while they didn't look at uh well they didn't look at income data or anything like that you do see that like they, you know, they they look at potential years of lives lost, which is I think they show that between uh, the beginning of February and like mid May, 
Um, it's something like 138,000, uh, years of life lost cumulatively or wow. something. And that's again, just only what a weird way May. to measure. Yeah. It's Sounds a weird way to crazy. measure it. But basically like when you compare those within based on like a racial breakdown, uh, it's pretty staggering. Cause apparently I guess for, for people who died from COVID-19 who were black, um, it's something like 6.9, like times higher, uh, in terms of overall years of life lost, this is kind of wow. like a, a, a confusing way to. It's a con, it's like a very confusing way to like frame it, and unfortunately, these are like ways of dealing with again big numbers that are even actually more difficult to make into a fine point than right. than one hundred forty two thousand coronavirus deaths. But uh, it's still like the the disparities are like the dispar the disparities I mean- should cause like mass outrage basically I mean, no, exactly. Here, here's the thing Here, here's a way of understanding it this is statistical genocide yeah in in, in the following sense yes th- it is not the systematic program of extermination that say the holocaust was right but it has the the virus has differential uh effects because of institutions that are already in place that have themselves genocidal implications right um uh implications that would uh, that truly qualify the united states as as an abuser of human rights um and so when you look at this it's like yes uh there are deaths across all um ethnicities uh but when you look at the sort of statistical balance of these things you, you begin to see a pattern that does evince a level of uh racial selection that if we don't take steps to mitigate uh, you can, I think, rightly accuse the United States of atrocities. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, I yeah, mean, for sure. Knowing, knowing that there are a number of other things that I would consider you could just, without this data, try <laughs> the U.S. for as atrocities, but still, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's interesting because especially if you think about, like, the question of reinfection, right, which you brought up earlier, Artie, um, we don't actually know if people are being reinfected or not or if there's just, like, a very long second phase of this illness that yeah. sometimes can take up to three months. Um, but what we do know for sure is that a significant portion of people surveyed, um, I think it was two months out, um, done in the United States, responded saying that they did not feel better still. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that like I talk about all the time with like other chronically ill and disabled friends is sort of just the social implications of like people just not understanding perpetual illness states. Yeah. And it's, absolutely terrifying to me to think about all the different prejudices that are sort of clashing here in order to create this perfect storm of like racism meets like a refusal to acknowledge mortality as a society meets like our inability to understand illness beyond like are you going to survive or are you dead or to have like a meaningful class-based uh conversation like class conversation uh, right in the u.s yeah are like social norms against talking about income and financial you know security plus our weird habit of treating everything like it's personal household finance regardless right Right. you know like why do we do that Mm mm-hmm And all these things together coming together at once in the context of a public health crisis in the like after like seven, I'd say seven decades in the United States of increasing austerity. Right. Like, I just don't really understand, like, how you could not act when given these 
like parameters, but if you're framing it as, well, you know, vulnerable populations, harder to protect, you did your best. Yeah. Like you got through it, right? That's kind of like where they're going. They're already like patting themselves on the back and there's a certain amount of loss of life that's been calculated into the situation, you know? Yeah. Right. I mean, peop, you know, people joke about like phrenology and, and race science and shit as like, uh, you know, 19th century, uh, like misguided, like racist gentleman scientist uh, <laughs> shit or whatever. But it basically has become, you know, part and part part and parcel of the like state apparatus in general. I think. Yeah. So. And also like I think also just like upheld by academia too, and institutionalized if you think about it. Yeah. But yeah. And it's it's especially like within the context too of like all these framings of the new normal. Um, oh God. Yeah. And and the thing that we've been talking about constantly the fact that like after the Great Recession like that there were just jobs that didn't come back and we were just sort of getting back to a pre Great Recession level of the economy before COVID um, and there's just like the imagining what's going to happen in terms of the gutting of public health departments going forward if something doesn't change right now like the urgency of like total overhaul is so overwhelming to me. You know. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is something that I was writing about in my piece for, for Nathan's Substack, um, which is that the j- just any sort of sense of what we might do uh, to respond is so just completely missing. From, I mean, I got responses to the piece. I got emails from people saying like, hey, I, I work for a state or municipality. We have no idea what to do. Right. Um like and, and and the other thing is no one with any putative authority or who we look to for answers has any idea either and they're not proposing anything. No. There's yeah. just this banking on the idea that somebody who I don't know uh will emerge from behind a tree or maybe over a fence and like rush in to uh to release us from the binds that we're in. But no one is. Yeah. And I think that that's why I just I sort of challenge this idea of expertise, not because I distrust what a virologist has to say. Quite the contrary. I I have a lot of respect for what virologists say. But it's so obvious to me that the kind of expertise that we need and the kind of uh, sensibilities that we need are about recognizing what's going on in the social uh, sphere, in the uh, political sphere. We have to come up with these ideas. And I just think that this, this just every time somebody decries something as utopian, I just, uh, my, I have a facial tick and I (laughs) I just respond to it only with the facial tick. Uh, because in this moment, if you're not thinking about something and it could be decried as utopian, you're you've failed at your job. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, also in a time when, in a time when fundamentally the, it it is, it is evident that the the fundamental social structure, like the, the political economy that we have been operating under in the United States and also globally is like fundamentally obvious, very obviously unsustainable, but also is, is specifically harmful to most of us, right? right? To like the majority of vast people, majority of the, the global population, yes, the vast majority of the global population. Yeah. Then like 
it is actually it's frankly insane to think of anything other than utopian solutions right like right. how could yeah. you how, how could you yeah. not think that you like gunning for a utopian solution is maybe the exact right thing to fucking do right now i guess you know the other I mean? question is how many more years of misery and more specifically what kind of misery would you prefer right. uh, you know it's just sort of like clippy you know like so well it seems like you're trying to engineer a human atrocity. Are you sure you don't? <laughs> Do you want to use a, a setup wizard for that? Yeah. Uh, no, Would I mean, you like to structure acting- that as a memorandum. <laughs> no, and I guess it makes sense because if you're always looking upward for advice or like you're always looking to somebody who's more expert, you're already making the assumption that they somehow know and that you don't. Whereas it should be just manifestly obvious to everyone that like any sort of like set of restrictions we put on our thinking before Mm -hmm. have to be abandoned. Um, And I think like if, if you are for some reason, like a professional in one of these fields and you're afraid of being, you know, criticized as loopy for, I don't know, maybe suggesting that, uh, I don't know, other forms of currency might be valuable right now. Um, Don't Uh, like, (laughs) It, the failure is all around you and you are always going to underestimate the number of people who are looking for mm-hmm. ideas where there are none. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Totally. I mean, I just keep thinking about my interview with Vivian Negron from Medicare for all week. Vivian has been in, uh, dealt with medical billing and worked in doctor's offices for 30 years. And she and I talked about the changes in billing and the way this, that insurance has made it harder and harder and harder to get care over the past 30 years. And yet here, public officials are pretending like those rules are sacrosanct and need to be upheld. Like, are you serious right now? It doesn't make any sense if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I really hate this is, this is going to, might, might be too on the nose, but like the term, the new normal, I don't know. When did they first, who started using that term? McKinsey. Was that, for, was that a McKinsey term first? Within the context of coronavirus, yeah. you mean? Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Oh, yeah. oh, I, I was, I was thinking about it historically. Uh, oh. I was just looking this up, but the, um, apparently the, the idea of the new normal, I think it had been out there one way or another, but was sort of increasingly used after the 2008 financial crisis. Oh boy. Um, apparently a, um, the head of the head of PIMCO, um, the financial services firm, mm-hmm. uh, oh. gave a lecture, which I think is sometimes considered the first, uh, instance of this, but it's, it's all after like, you have to come up with this term to habituate people to the present. Um, right, uh, exactly. if, if you're having a crisis now, Apparently, if you go back further than that, the first person to ever use it in a literary sense was Robert Heinlein in *The Moon Is a Harsh Mistress*. And, and there's a there's a character oh there's gosh. a character in the book that tells colonists on the moon, um, "Citizens, requests may reach you through your comrade neighbors. I hope you will willingly comply. It will speed the day when I can bow out and life can get back to normal." A new normal, free of the authority, <laughs> free of guards, free of troops stationed on us, free of passports and searches and arbitrary arrests. Now, very interestingly, Heinlein's character uses the new normal as a way of describing what will happen after revolution. Nice. Interesting. Interesting. But by the yeah. time it crosses the transom into PIMCO, it's the result <laughs> of what happens when there's not a revolution. Right. What happens? What? What? How do we uh, how, how can we spin the forestalling of revolution into 
well, in lieu of a revolution, here is the new normal, which is to say that things definitely, certainly things definitely changed. <laughs> we definitely changed some things. There were some systemic modifications. Uh, a new life awaits you in the off-world colonies. Oh, <laughs> um, boy. <laughs> anyway. You know what? You knew it was going to end up back there. You knew and it was going to And on that note, I, I think that might be a good place for us to wrap. Yeah, that sounds um, about right. Frankly, I've never had more Cheery fun. Cheery exoplanet uh, <laughs> continuation of feudal capitalism. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a patron. Could mm-hmm. not do this without you. Um, as we mentioned, actually, we should talk about this real quick. Like if you haven't checked out the piece that Phil wrote for Nathan Tankus's Substack, totally check that out and also the two posts that Artie's done so far on health and capital have been I'm biased but I'm pretty impressed yeah so I feel like uh, what we've been able to talk about is I'm always I think the conversation is always enhanced by writing and uh, so it's really fun to like have an opportunity to like get something out there written um, which ultimately I, I don't think I would have been able to write without doing this podcast um, so that was fun. Yeah. And no, I, I think that it's, we've been working on this for a long time. A lot of these ideas that you guys have both synthesized this week and it's, it's great to see it sort of like complementing our content synergy, right? We're just yeah. creating the, we're creating the, the orthodoxy. <laughs> yeah. It's our yeah. own new normal. Exactly. Own it. Right. Um, I think that, that about cuts it for today. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for being a patron and supporting the show. We'll catch you later in the week in the main feed episode. Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. And stay alive another week. See you later. Cool. Bye.
Thank mm-hmm. you.